welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week I'm delighted to again get a chance to chat with Johan Hari. Johan is an internationally best-selling author whose books have appeared in 38 languages. He was twice named National Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International. We last heard from Johan in 2018 about his then new book Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. Today we get to talk about Johan's latest book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, released on the 6th of January 2022 in the UK and the 25th of January in the US and Canada. For Stolen Focus, Johan went on a three-year journey to uncover the reasons behind our inability to focus and to understand how this crisis affects our well-being and our society. Crucially, he learned how we can reclaim our stolen focus if we are prepared to fight for it. In this interview, I was keen to understand Johan's motivations for examining our loss of focus and also to examine what we might all be able to do to fully re-engage with our lives. Johan, welcome. Um, thank you so much for joining me today for the Madden America podcast. I'm so glad to be back with you. Hooray. Thank you. Thank you. We, we last spoke for this podcast in 2018, and then we discussed your, your new book at the time, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, which has quite rightly gone on to become an uh, international bestseller. So here we are in 2022, and your new book, Stolen Focus, looks at why we are struggling to pay attention. So to kind of get us going, I was just wondering, did your work writing Lost Connections lead directly to your desire to write Stolen Focus? Or, or was there a precipitating event that kind of created the urge to find out more? I think there's a sort of loose connection, which is all, all of my books are about a question that I want to answer that I don't know the answer to in advance. Of course, I have various ideas. I have sort of guesses. But so, like you said, with, with Lost Connections, the question was, you know, why are so many people depressed? Why is it going up so much? Why are so many people anxious? What can we do about it? And and for, for Stolen Focus, there was, a, I wouldn't say a precipitating event, a sort of culminating event where I realised I had to think about this. So, um <laughs> When he was nine years old, my godson developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. So he would he would sort of obsessively, you know, do all the kind of classic Elvis impersonation, pelvis jiggling and low crooning. And it, it's funny because I, I don't even know how he'd stumbled across Elvis. It must have been on YouTube, but he didn't know that that was sort of a cliche. So it was quite heart catching to watch him. And I remember him, he kept demanding that I tell him the story of Elvis. So I sort of gave him a little bit of the summary of the story, obviously, I tried to skip the ending. And, and in the course of it, I mentioned that he'd built this kind of palace for his mother when he became famous and called it Graceland. And I remember one night I was tucking him in and he said, Johan, will you, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, yeah, in the way you do to children when they ask you completely hypothetical questions. I said, yeah, of course. And I, I didn't think about it again until 10 years later when uh, things had really kind of um, gone wrong. He, he was 19 by then and he was he dropped out of school when he was 15. And he, I was very worried about him, partly because it felt like he just wasn't able to focus on anything. He, he, he spent his life 
alternating between his iPad and and his phone and his laptop and this kind of blur of like YouTube and Snapchat and porn and, and, and it, 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 and he was a lovely and is a lovely person, but it felt like there was nothing could get any traction in his mind. It felt like in that decade that he'd become a man, it felt like he had kind of broken and fragmented. Um, and frankly, I thought, felt like that had happened to lots of people. He was an extreme example, but I felt like that was happening to me. I felt like that was happening to lots of people I knew. There's some small suggestive evidence that I was aware of at the time that suggested this. And there's a small study of American college students that found they focus on average for any one thing for 65 seconds. Um, the average office worker, according to Professor Gloria Marks' research, focuses for three minutes on any given thing. That's a whole life that dissolves into a kind of hailstorm of 65 second and three minute bursts. And one day I remember we were sitting on, on my sofa here, here in London and I, and I looked at him and I was looking at my own phone. I was looking back at him and, and I just said, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what? He didn't even remember this Elvis obsession. I was like, no, no, we have to break this sort of numbing routine. Let's go to Graceland. And he was like, are you serious? And I said, yeah, but I'll only do it if you promise that you won't look at your phone all the time, that you'll leave your phone in in the hotel. And he said, yeah, yeah, I promise. I promise. So uh, just a couple of weeks later, we, we, we went to initially to New Orleans and then we went different parts of the South and then we went to Graceland. And, and, and I remember when we arrived at the gates of Graceland, so there isn't, when you get shown around Graceland now, there isn't a human being who shows you around anymore. What happens is you arrive and they give you an iPad and you put in headphones and the iPad talks to you and it says, you know, go, go straight ahead. And it explains the history of it. And, um, so we're walking around Graceland and everyone is just staring at their iPads, right? Just everyone, heads down, staring at their iPad. And I, I keep sort of trying to make eye contact with people to go, oh, look. And one person did actually look at me and I wanted to sort of say to them, oh, look, we're the people who traveled thousands of miles and actually looked at the place we traveled to. And then I realized that he looked at me just because he'd looked away from the iPad to, to take out his phone to take a selfie. And, and eventually we we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's famous favorite room in the, in the mansion. And there was this couple standing next to me and he turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. If you swipe left on the iPad, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I sort of looked at him and his wife starts doing it and they're swiping left and right. And I looked at him and and I was so worked up. I just said, but sir, you do realize there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do here. You can just turn your head because we are actually in the jungle room. You don't have to look at a representation of it on your iPad. We're, we're literally there, right? We're in the jungle room. And of course they backed out of the room and Harry had clearly thought I was some kind of lunatic. Um, and I turned to my godson to kind of laugh about it. And he was just standing in a corner looking at Snapchat because he'd all the way through, he just couldn't keep to this pledge he was just constantly, you know, texting, looking at Snapchat, unable to be at all present. And I just started to kind of shouting and he stormed off again entirely justifiably. And I, I didn't see him again until that night. We, we were staying at the Heartbreak Hotel, which is just quick down the street from Graceland. And I found him, there's this swimming pool that's shaped like a guitar and they play Suspicious Minds in a constant loop there. And, and it, he just said, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And he just went back to looking at his phone. And I remember 
sort of thinking, God, like, like so much anger, my anger at him was really anger at myself, right? Because I could feel those forces weighing on me. It wasn't quite as severe or the outcome wasn't as severe, but so that was when I thought, God, I really need to investigate this. And maybe, maybe this is just, these anecdotes don't represent a wider reality. Maybe they do. So I ended up traveling a huge amount all over the world from Rio to Moscow to Miami uh, to Melbourne to try to figure out what was really going on here. And I think I learned a huge amount about, I believe that there is strong evidence that we are facing a real attention crisis. And the uh, Anna, I really gained a lot, I think a lot of insight from the people I met and studying their, their research about why this is happening to us and what we can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. It was heartbreaking actually to read, you know, that that account of the joy of childhood becoming obscured behind, you know, looking at screens. And, you know, of course, when you're reading the book, you you recognize so much of that behavior in yourself. And, you know, I've caught myself telling my own daughter not to look at the screen so much while holding an iPad. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. And I think it's, I think you're so right that the this is something that's weighing on everyone and not just as a result of the technological changes that have happened, although they're a key part of it. But it, it, it can often feel very ambient, very slippery. And it was really striking to me to learn from these amazing scientists that I got to know that there's actually good scientific evidence for 12 different factors that are, I would argue, dissolving our attention. But that once we understand that, it does mean we can begin to get some handle on what's going on. And actually there are techniques, some of them are personal techniques and some of them are bigger social changes that we can we can implement that, that will actually help us with this. Because it's not that your attention collapsed, your attention has been stolen, right, by these bigger forces. And we need to shift how we think about this. Very often when I, well, if I think about how I behave towards my godson, but also how I behave towards myself, it was sort of a form of reproach, right? It's like, you're being lazy, you're being weak, you know, pull yourself together, which doesn't work. It doesn't, doesn't work very well for anything, but particularly doesn't work for this. Because there are these bigger causes, actually, that, that we need to think about this in a very different way and have a very different disposition towards our own attention problems and our kids' attention problems. So the book examines a number of deep forces that at work that are damaging our attention and you know of course i'd love hours and hours to talk about all of them but um i, I wondered if we could perhaps touch on a couple if that's okay that they kind of you know stood out to me as you know kind of things that i struggle with and that's what's so nice about the book is that you know when you're reading it you do recognize these things in yourself and you start to berate yourself but then you start to see that actually this is kind of by design and there are probably quite a lot of really intelligent people invested in making you behave a certain way um so the first one um, was the crippling of our flow states. And um, so the book talks of a crisis in how we spend our time and our waning superficial attention. But it also talks of a real change in how we experience the present moment. And so people listening may have heard of the concept of, of flow state, but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that and why it's so important for us and why it's so much harder to reach in recent times. Yeah, I learned a lot about this from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who was the scientist who first discovered this. So I interviewed in Claremont in California, which was very lucky to get to interview him because he died very recently, um, which was a real, um, although he was in his late 80s, it's a real, a real loss. And I think Mihaly's story really helps us to understand it. Um, because what he discovered is that actually there is a sort of, um, all human beings have a capacity to focus very deeply in a way that feels effortless. 
in certain circumstances and the current way we live is militating against those circumstances. He discovered this. Uh, it's actually worth thinking about how it all began. I always think about him at the start of his story when he was nine years old. He was in a place called Fiume in Italy. And it's the height of the Second World War. And the place was being bombed to hell. And um, one day the bombing raid began and Mahali ran to try to find shelter. And he ran to the local butcher's shop because it was the nearest kind of solid building. And there were adults trying to get into the butcher's shop. And uh, they, they eventually managed to get in. But when they went in, they, they discovered the, the three butchers had actually been murdered and were hanging from their own butcher's hooks. And he had to hide there next to their, their bodies until the, the bombing raid had ended. And uh, so Mahali was from a Hungarian family. His dad was a Hungarian diplomat. And they were basically fleeing through different parts of Europe, trying to find safety or through the war. And so he becomes a sort of adolescent, a teenager, in just the ruins of Europe. And he's just convinced that adults have really don't know how to live, have destroyed the world and don't know how to live. And uh, he lives in a refugee camp for a while, having had a very hard life. And one day he's approached to become a member of the local scout group. And they start taking him out into the mountains, which he'd never done before. And he starts to have this incredible feeling, which he couldn't really articulate, but that when he was doing something that was quite difficult and challenging, like navigating a ravine, he felt like his sense of ego melted away, that he had this... This, this deep sense, he didn't have a word for it then, he later called it flow, this moment which lots of people will have experienced, you know, some people it will be playing the guitar, you know, some people it will be working out, for me it would be writing, when you're doing something and you're totally in it and you're in that moment and you're flowing and your sense of time and ego fall away and you're paying deep attention, but it doesn't feel like you're paying attention. It doesn't feel like you're sort of, oh, oh God, I've got to pay attention to this. It's just an, a gusher of attention. So Mahali has these incredible experiences and decides, you know, a refugee camp is no way to live. He decides to go to Rome. He's, he's, he's only 13, goes to Rome on his own and he becomes a translator in Rome and a waiter. He actually served Humphrey Bogart once. He decides he wants to study psychology and he makes his way to America. And when he gets to America, he has this really kind of sobering discovery, which is that he discovers that American psychology at that time is dominated by a really bleak vision. It's a vision that's actually taken over a lot of the world in which we now live in really important ways. So a man called B.F. Skinner was the most famous psychologist in the United States at the time. And Skinner had built this model of psychology um, that, that it was later used to design Instagram and the social media that your daughter's no doubt obsessed with and you know, most of the kids and most of us are obsessed with. And it comes from a very simple form of, a maddeningly simple form of psychology. Um, so people can try this at home if they like, if you want to see how it works. If you, for example, um, get a pigeon and put it in a cage, pigeons are making random movements all the time. They peck around. If you just pick a random movement, like, I don't know, when the pigeon moves its left wing and decide to reward that movement. So every time it lifts its left wing, you release a little bit of seed into the cage. Quite quickly, the pigeon will start obsessively raising its left wing, right? Because it's learned, oh, that's how I get a reward. You could choose anything. You could choose when it raises its head high, when it crouches low, doesn't matter, completely arbitrary. And, and Skinner had discovered that rewarding, when you reward a living creature, when you give a living creature arbitrary rewards, doesn't matter what it is. Um, you can train it to do 
all sorts of crazy things it would not do otherwise. So you can train a pigeon to play ping pong. You can train um, a pig to vacuum. You can train rabbits to pick up coins and put them in piggy banks, right? You can train an animal to focus on meaningless things if you give it the right pattern of rewards. Of course, these are the core insights that were later used to design, as I say, Instagram and so on. Consciously used by Instagram. Um, but Mahali was like, God, all they're doing is focusing on this very... Um, you know, reductive, it's a real aspect of human nature, but it's bleak, it's reductive, you know, this is not who we want to be, you know, just arbitrarily jerking and twitching according to someone else's script, right? So he's like, there must be more to human psychology than this. And he decides to study something positive, something generative. So he starts by just studying a group of painters in Chicago. And he says to them, can I just watch you for months as you're painting, just observe your process? And as he observes it, he he begins to observe exactly this thing about flow. That when a painter is painting, they go into this almost hypnotic state where attention comes very easily, where they're very absorbed in what they do. But crucially, because Skinner had argued all of human psychology was about rewards. It's about the reward you get. But Mahali noticed, actually, once a painter has finished their painting, they don't spend ages staring at the painting. They don't obsess about the money they're going to get, not if they're a good artist. Generally, they just put the painting aside and do another one, right? That actually, if all of psychology was about these arbitrary rewards, how would you explain that? You can't. He discovered there must be more to psychology than this. There must be a positive and generative force. And of course, this is what led him to study what he called flow states. So when he interviewed having talked to these painters, he would start to look at a whole range of people, like rock climbers, chess players, initially only looked at non-professional people. And he discovered that the way they described um, their experiences were incredibly similar. And they very often used a word like flow, right? You just feel like you're flowing. And this is how he identified flow states, right? Which are a really important part. They're firstly the most easy and uh, profound form of human attention, right? Um, and secondly, they're an innate human capacity. If you know where to drill, you can release this gusher of attention within you in a way that doesn't feel effortful. And he discovered there's certain parameters for how you get into flow. Firstly, you have to choose a clear goal. You have to say, you know, I want to play this guitar. I want to paint this canvas and set aside all your other goals. That goal has to be meaningful to you. I know nothing about the guitar. I don't care about the guitar. I mean, I like the sound of guitars, but I'm never going to play it. If I chose the guitar, it wouldn't work. I wouldn't go into flow or painting a canvas. I mean, I'm like, I can draw a stick man. That's about it. And the third, and I think this is the most important is that it's got to be something at the edge of your abilities. So if you're doing something that's too easy, you don't get into a state of flow. So if you're a climber, which I, as you can see, I'm not, but if you're a climber, you know, if you were a middle ranking climber, you, want, you don't want to climb over the garden wall. Equally, you don't want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. That's going to be too daunting. You want to climb something that's a little bit higher and harder than the last thing you climbed. So Mahali made all these incredible discoveries about flow, about how important it is for human psychology, about how easy it makes attention. But he also discovered that flow states are very fragile. And crucially, if you are disrupted, if you are interrupted, as we are all being interrupted all the time at the moment, I'm sure we'll talk about that. If you are interrupted your sense of flow just dissolves, right? Flow is almost like a dream. If you're shaken awake all the time, you won't dream. If you're interrupted all the time, you won't flow. And we live in a culture that is now constantly interrupting us. So we're experiencing a lot of flow disruption. And in a way, I feel like what we live in is a conflict between the world 
Skinner wanted to build and the world Mihaly identified, right? So the world's, we live in a world dominated by technologies, literally based on Skinner's insights. When you look at people, you know, endlessly posing for selfies, you know, uh, to get likes on Instagram, they are like Skinner's pigeons, right? They're like Skinner's pigeons with a six pack and a pina colada, right? Do we want to be Skinner's pigeons or do we want to be like Mahali's painters? People with deep forms of focus and flow. I think that's the, the choice we face now. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, that, that reading that really hit home because it made me realise how easy that state was, I think, to get into when I was so much younger and how you could get involved in activities where the time passed and you didn't know the time had passed. You looked up and it was many hours later. And yet, you know, since becoming involved in so much more and the pressures of work and, you know, the, the daily stress and daily grind, then, uh, you know, I, I have those feelings so much less now, which is it's such a shame. But it's not ageing. I think it's really important because Mahali looked at actual uh, age and age doesn't correlate with flow states. It, what it is, is that the way we work now, which is quite different to how we've worked in the past, not to romanticise the past, plenty of things are better now. But if we think about one specific example, for which there's really powerful evidence, I interviewed at MIT, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a man named Professor Earl Miller. And he said, look, you've got to understand one thing, right, more than anything else, you can only consciously think about one thing at a time. You know, this is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. It hasn't changed for 40,000 years. You can only think about one thing at a time. But, but what's happened is we are constantly, uh, we, we've bought into a kind of delusion, which is that we can think about many things at the same time. We, we believe that, right? We think, oh, I can talk to you, but I can check my texts and I can also watch the television in the background, right? But what he discovered, what Professor Miller and many other scientists discovered, is that when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time, in fact, you are juggling between them. You're mentally juggling, right? And your consciousness sort of papers over the process of juggling, but you are juggling. And that comes with four really big costs. The first is called the, 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 the switch cost, which is basically, if I look at my phone now and I look back at you and I've just looked at my text, you can think, oh, it only takes two seconds. I'll glance at my phone, right? I've deliberately hidden it the other side of the room, so I can't do this. If you, my glance at that, and I look back at you, I might think, oh, that just took two seconds, but it doesn't because my mind has to refocus on what we were talking about, right? It's been disrupted. I've not just lost flow. I've actually lost the train of my thought for a second. The second cost is that as you do that, you start to make mistakes because just inevitably you make mistakes when you're switching between things, your error rate goes up and you have to backtrack and you have to fix those mistakes. Um, the third is there's a big cost for your creativity. Over time, your mind will start to free associate. It will start to make connections between different things you've experienced. If your mind is jammed up with the, so much of your bandwidth is taken on switching, correcting, you lose the a significant amount of that time that produces creativity. And, and fourthly, you remember less because it takes mental energy to encode your memories, you know, your experiences into memories. And if you're spending a lot of your bandwidth switching, you're not, you're not doing that. Um, so the way um, Professor Miller put it to me, we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of distraction, right? We're jammed up with this. And the results of this are quite hardcore. I mean, if you look at some of the studies, there was a small study that was done for Hewlett-Packard, the um, company that make printers, where they got a group of workers and they split them into two groups. The first group was told, just do your work and you're not going to re receive any distractions on phone or, or uh, texting or email. 
And the second group was just disrupted with phones, texts, and emails at a normal rate. And they measured their IQ while this was happening. The people who were distracted, as a result of the distraction, had an IQ that was 10 points lower than the people who were just doing one thing, right? 10 points. To give a sense of comparison, that's double the dip in your IQ you get when you're stoned. So you would be better off sitting at your desk smoking a fat spliff and just doing one thing than sitting at your desk and trying to respond to constant distractions while doing your work, right? There was another study by Carnegie Mellon University where they got 138 students and they split them into two groups and they gave them all the same exam. And one group was told, normal exam conditions, just do the exam, you can't have your phone. And the second group was told, you can receive and send text messages. And the second group, the one that got texting, did 20% less did twenty percent less well on the test in, on average. Now we're all losing that 20% of brain capacity all the time, pretty much at the moment. So you can see that's not, that's not, it's tempting to go, oh, I'm just older now than I was then. But it's not that you're older, it's that, that there's been a profound change in the environment. That's not the only one, but there's been a profound change in the environment that, that de- deeply degrades your ability to focus and pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. You know, through the whole book, there is this kind of theme of the rise of technology that can track and, and manipulate you. And, and you touch on and issues there that have been on the, on the radar quite recently, the increasing use of social media, the, the, the rise of digital surveillance. So some listening might have seen the film The Social Dilemma, and you spent time with the writers of that film, Tristan Harris and Azza Raskin, uh, although your book considers much wider issues than, than just the use of technology. But, you know, when we're considering social media and search engines such as Google, we, we seem to be designing to distract intentionally. Is that what you found in your research for the book? Yeah, it's really important. To, and this is something I, I learned, obviously, from, as you mentioned, a lot of the people in Silicon Valley who'd actually designed the world in which we now live. I feel really uncomfortable with what their creations have done. I think it's it's really important to understand, and this is something that really changed how I think about it, some of this distraction is inherent to the technology, but a huge amount of the degradation of our attention is not due to the technology itself. It's due to the current business model of the technology and the way the technology is designed at the moment. So if you think about, start with a really basic question, which is Facebook will tell you lots of things. It'll tell you your grandmother's birthday. It'll tell you if there's been a terrorist attack and if your friends have marked themselves as safe. There's something Facebook doesn't do. So very often you'll be sitting at home and you'll think, oh, I wonder which of my friends are free and would like to meet up, right? There is no button on Facebook that says, which of my friends are free and would like to meet up and nearby, right? Now, that would be a really popular button. I'm sure everyone listening would think, oh, I'd like to have that option, right? Why doesn't Facebook provide it? When you when you follow the trail of the answer to that, I think it helps us to understand a lot of what's going on. So Facebook's business model at the moment, and all the social major social media sites' business model, is essentially they make money out of two things. The first is obviously they sell advertising, you know, you look at Facebook, you see an ad. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. The second is every time you do anything on Facebook, you message your grandmother, you like something, you dislike something, whatever it might be, that information is being sorted and selected, right? And is gathered and selected to build up a profile of you, right? Which they then sell to advertisers so advertisers can target you. The minute you put your phone down, every minute you're not looking at your phone, those companies are losing lots of money because they don't get the advertising and they get less information on you. And every minute you stare at your phone, they make more money. So your distraction is their fuel. 
every time you regain your attention to do something else, that is a disaster for you. So their designers, who are not evil people by any means, their designers are dedicating, and these are very clever, sophisticated people, are dedicating all their energy to figuring out, how do I keep you scrolling, right? Now, once you understand that, you can see why that button doesn't exist. Because the button, if it said, well, oh, my friend Bob is around the corner and he wants to go for a pint, I would put my phone down, right? I'd turn off the phone. I'd go and sit with Bob, right? I wouldn't talk to Bob through Facebook. I would just talk to him in the real world, which we all know makes us feel much better. That would be a disaster for their share price. If suddenly, so everything they do as a result of the business model, not as a result of individual cruelty on the part of the people, they're not Bond villains, right? But the business model makes that decision for them, right? So the products are designed to distract us. They are designed to disrupt our attention. I mean, there's many ways in which um, these models harm our attention, which they flow directly from, I can go through some of them if you want, but it flows directly from this, this business model. And the solution to that is we have to deal with the business model, right? And I can talk about how, but in the same way that, you know, in the 70s, we'd, I mean, we actually knew it before, but it became public, very widely publicly known in the 70s, that, so people used to paint their houses with lead paint. And then it was discovered that this causes profound damage to children's attention and IQ. And so what did we do? We banned the lead in paint, right? We didn't ban paint. I'm sitting in a room that's painted, so are you, right? We just got rid of the lead in the paint. In the same way, we can ban that specific attention rating business model. Doesn't mean we're not going to have social media. It just means it will work on very different principles that can be dedicated to harming your attention rather than raiding your attention. Yeah, I think you do start to feel quite differently, don't you? When when you start to realise that your attention is the product that these uh, social media giants want, you know that that puts a, a rather different spin on it, doesn't it? Than um, you know the kind of benign, you know, seeing what your friends are up to. Exactly. And Tristan says, Tristan said when he tested, who I, Tristan Harris, who is one of the people I most admire, who's someone who, who a former Google engineer who who worked deeply on this, he, he has this, there's a moment that really chills me. He worked on the Gmail team at the time when it was, Gmail was being developed. And there was this moment where someone said, hey, why don't we make it so that every time someone gets an email, their phone vibrates? And everyone said, oh, that's a good idea. And then he describes just in the next few weeks, walking around San Francisco and Palo Alto, where he was, and just hearing and seeing people's phones vibrating and realizing that was happening all over the world. And that in fact, 11 billion people, there were 11 billion interruptions every day as a result of that decision. And just thinking, oh my God, what are we doing? Right? And there's these moments where you realize how these were, this is not some inevitable aspect of the technology. These were decisions made in specific contexts that we can undo, right? It doesn't have to be like this. People designing it don't like it. One of the former Google engineers I interviewed, James Williams, spoke once at a technology conference. Hundreds and hundreds of people were there. These are people who are designing the world in which we live. He said, could anyone here put up their hand if you want to live in the world that we're designing? and not one person put up their hand, right? So this is about changing the incentives for those people, the financial incentives, so that we can get to a saner model. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I think so. I know I do. I think many of us struggle with that sense of colluding or having to collude with social media. So almost feeling it's a necessary evil, experiencing the feeling of missing out if you don't use it or having to use it for promotional purposes, probably like you may have to for this this book, for example. So, but, you know, 
how do we not march to their tune? So are there ways that we can think differently about using technology for promotional purposes or, or for connection? Yeah, so there's two things there, isn't there? I think it's a re- really important question. First thing is what we can do as individuals. And as you know, I tried a very extreme solution for my book. I spent three months entirely without the internet, and I, and I tell that, that story in the book. And you know, that helped my attention enormously. And then I came back and I was as bad as I'd ever been. And I went to see James Williams, that former Google engineer, who's now a really important philosopher of attention. He was in Moscow, so I went to see him there. Uh, And I remember James saying to me, yeah, you know, Johan, you're thinking about this the wrong way. Um, Trying to individually, you know, just have digital detoxes. I mean, it's fine. Do it if you want. It'll help you a bit. But he said, it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is to wear a gas mask one day a week. I mean, fine. I'm not against gas masks. You know, they might give you some relief. But you have to go to the, the, the root of the problem. So I think there are lots of things we can do as individuals. Um, I don't know if you can see in my office here, but I've got behind me, it's called a K-safe. It's a plastic timed safe um, where you could you lift up the top, you put your phone in and you twist the top and it'll lock away your phone for however long you tell it to from five minutes to, I think, a week. Uh, and I use that every day to put my phone away for at least four hours. Uh, on my laptop that I'm speaking to you through, I have Freedom an app that cuts you off from the internet. Um, I have lots of personal things that I do that I write about in the book. I'm in favour of all these interventions. They're valuable and important. I'm also in favour of being honest with people. They'll only get you so far. And there's a deeper layer of solution to this, which is that we have to actually take on the forces that are stealing our focus and defeat them, right? We have to stop them doing this. At the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder all over all of us. And then we're being told by the people pouring itching powder over us, you know, you might want to meditate. It would help you with all this scratching. And you go, right, stop pouring the itching powder on me, then I'll meditate, right? So we need to go to the sources of these problems, which include technology, but actually go, fact, technology is not the biggest factor. I'm sure we'll talk about the others, but we have to go to the source of this. And that can sound, I remember when I first thought about this, thinking, God, you know, as James put it to me, saying, you know, systemic problems require systemic solutions. I'm thinking, God, that sounds really daunting. But then you have to think about it. I began to think about it in relation to wider social struggles. So for example, I'm 42. I am for a few more weeks. Um, When my grandmothers were 42 years old, uh, it was in 1962, I thought about their lives, right? They were, one of my grandmothers was a working class Scottish woman living in the Scottish tenements. And one of them was a Swiss peasant woman is how they they would have called it then, uh, living on a mountain in Switzerland, right? My grandmothers left school when they were 13 because no one cared about educating girls. My Swiss grandmother was actually a brilliant, brilliant at drawing and painting. No one wanted to hear that, right? Shut up, get married. My, my Scottish grandmother went to work in a laundry. She wanted to, she wanted to stay at school. No one cared, right? Um, by the time they were 42, the age I am now, um, my Swiss grandmother didn't even have the vote. There were, you know, 4% of women in the British parliament were, sorry, 4% of members of parliament in Britain were women. There were no women heads of companies. There were no women police officers, senior police officers. Um, Men controlled almost everything. It was legal for my grandmothers to be raped by their husbands. Um, They weren't allowed to have bank accounts in their own names uh, because they were married women. The degree of male power is hard to get your head around, Right. Now, there's still a long way to go, and it's, I know, appreciate for all the women listening, it's extremely annoying to hear a man mansplain this, but there's still a long way to go. But if I look at my niece, who's now 17, who loves to draw like her great-grandmother loved to draw, 
the gap between my grandmother's life and my niece's life is staggering. Now, when my niece draws, we say, amazing, you're going to go to art school. We love you. You're great, right? Even crazed misogynists would not suggest that my niece should not be allowed to have a bank account, should not be allowed to vote. You know, it should be legal to rape her. I mean, these things would be unsayable, right? And unthinkable, quite rightly. Um, Why did that change happen? It did not happen because, you know, powerful people decided to hand it down from on high. It happened because ordinary women and some sympathetic men banded together and said, this 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 is bullshit. We're not going to put up with this anymore. This isn't right. And they fought and they fought and they fought and they fought. And eventually, on many issues, they prevailed. And there's still a long way to go. I'd stress that again. And in some ways, we've been going backwards on some of these questions. But there's, there was a big fight. And just like the feminist movement made it possible for women to reclaim their bodies, I think we need, and there is already developing, an attention movement to reclaim our minds, right? We need to take on the forces that are doing this to us. They are not popular. They are powerful in some ways, but they are weak in others. And there are different ways our society can work and run that do not trash and invade our focus. And we've got to take on those people. We've got to take on those forces and we've got to prevail over them. You know, and that requires a shift in our psychology because while there are, I stress there are things individuals can do and I'm in favor of them and I talk about them a lot in the book. We also need to get out of this mindset of when we can't focus blaming ourselves, right? Or just asking for tiny little things. You know, we are not medieval peasants at the court of King Zuckerberg begging for crumbs of attention from his table, right? We are the free citizens of democracies and we can reclaim our minds if we want to. That comes across loud and clear in the book and it's so important, isn't it? So the book talks about the combined impacts of poor attention, poor diet, environmental pollution, pollutants, lack of time in nature, lack of sleep, overwork, chronic stress, and so much more besides, and people will read it for themselves. It, it's difficult to read the book and not feel that this couldn't all be better designed to prevent us from responding to crises and social problems. But the common factor in all of this seems to be putting profit before people. So do you think the push for sustained economic growth is really the kind of underlying issue behind all of this? You know, I came to this reluctantly and late in the day. Um, it comes down to, there's this question that um, emerged early in the research that I slightly backed away from thinking about for a long time. I went to interview in Copenhagen in Denmark, um, the first scientist to prove that our collective attention span really is shrinking. It's a man called Professor Suna Lehman, an amazing uh, scientist, is at the Technical University of Denmark. He's a professor of applied mathematics. And Suna made this really important breakthrough. So he, <laughs> he did it for a personal reason. Every morning he's got these two young sons who he loves that come and jump in his bed and jump all over him. And every morning he would instinctively reach for his phone before he reached for them. And he thought, there's something wrong here. But he's like, oh, am I just being a grumpy old man? You know, there's always been people who thought attention was getting worse. So he he decided to do research on this. And initially he did quite a small study. It really built into this massive thing involving many scientists. Looked at something very simple. He looked at, initially at Twitter and he said, you know, as anyone listening who uses Twitter knows, there are certain trending topics, which are the things, you know, large numbers of people are talking about. And they're identified by Twitter and they trend and you can look at them. And initially he looked at, okay, how long does a trending topic last for? And he started by looking, in 2013, the average trending topic would last for 17.5 hours. So people would talk about one thing for 17.5 hours. And by the time you got a few years later, 2016, that was down to 12 hours and it's continued to decline. Right? So, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, maybe that's a quirk of Twitter. 
So we start to look at a huge range of other data sets to see, well, are we talking about any one thing less and less? Discovered across the entire internet, with one exception, which was Wikipedia, which is interesting and unexplained. So whether it was Google searches, Reddit, whatever it be, people were focusing less and less on any one thing. Turned out this was true of things like, how often do we, when a movie is a hit, how long do people carry on seeing it after it's been an initial splash? Things like that. So he starts looking at this data, and then he decides that this is where it led to the really important breakthrough, I think. I mean, that was important in itself, but they looked at, obviously, Google Books has digitized an enormous number of books. They, they looked at books going back to the 1880s, so from 1880 until the present day. And there's a kind of fancy technical um, technique that can identify new concepts that emerge in books. It's called detecting engrams. So think about a phrase like, no deal Brexit, right? No one used the phrase no deal Brexit before 2016 in those halcyon days. Um, and uh, I'm guessing in five years time, no one will use no deal Brexit again, right? It's a phrase that emerges and then disappears. But there's phrases like that throughout history, the Harlem Renaissance, whatever it might be. So you can, tr you can train an algorithm to detect these new phrases, detect the engram, and see, well, how long do people talk about each new topic? It's effectively a way of discovering the equivalent of what trended on Twitter in the past. It's a really clever method. And what they discovered is really striking, which is since the 1880s, with each decade that passes, people discussed new concepts for shorter and shorter periods. The graph looks exactly like the graph of Twitter since Twitter was created to the present day, right? Which is fascinating and bizarre. And I remember Sina saying when he looked at the data, God damn it, this really is happening, right? There really is a shrinking collective attention span. And he's trying to figure out, well, why would that be? And he discovered they basically built an equivalent of like the climate models that predict future, uh, well, changes in the climate. And they, they basically found if you want to make information behave like that, what you have to do is flood the system with information, right? If you flood the system with information, anyone in that system will be able to deal with that information less and less. It's like we're drinking from a fire hose is how he thinks of it, right? We're sprayed with this enormous amount of information. Um, and when you, massively pump people with information, you degrade the amount they can possibly process it, right? But for obvious reasons. And it was really challenging because the temptation is to go, oh, this is a problem to do with the internet. And of course, the factors we just talked about are very real, or this is a recent phenomenon. But actually, what Suna showed is that attention has been degrading, you know, for all of my life, for all of your parents' lives, for all of your grandparents' lives, in fact, our great-grandparents' lives, right? This has been a consistent trend. What is the underlying thing that's causing that, right? And there's a big debate about this, and I offer this much more tentatively than I've offered the other evidence because it's not clear. But people like Thomas Hilland Erikson, who's one of the leading social scientists in Norway, have argued that what's going on is related to the phenomenon of economic growth, right? So we live in an economy and a society built entirely around the principle of economic growth. Basically, if lead, political leaders guarantee economic growth, they get re-elected most of the time. If they oversee, if they don't oversee economic growth, they get chucked out. Same with heads of companies. Uh, if the company grows, they, they're rewarded. If the company shrinks, they're shafted. And, and, and so Professor Erickson was talking about how, well, how do we, uh, how do we secure growth? There's two ways. You can identify a new market. Okay, that's one way to secure growth. Or you can get an existing market to consume more of the same thing. So, for example, if I can get you to watch television and at the same time look at your phone, I've doubled the market for advertising, right? 
uh, you're exposed to twice the amount of advertising you were exposed to before. Now, clearly, there are still new markets being identified, but a lot of economic growth is currently coming from this invasion. Why do we sleep less? A major cause of, of um, attention problems that I talk about in the book. Well, a big factor is that we're amped up all the time to be buying stuff and doing stuff, right? We're, we're in this constant agitated state. So I do think at some point, and this is a long way down the line, but as we build an attention movement that's trying to think about the reasons why we can't think as clearly as we want to, sooner or later, I suspect, I could be wrong, that we will have to reckon with the fact that we have a model based on economic growth that requires this greater and greater levels of consumption, when actually to reclaim our attention, we have to consume less, step back from some of this stuff. Um, by the way, we're going to have to deal with that model of economic growth anyway, because of the ecological consequences of it. You can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Um, so there's many reasons why we're going to have to deal with economic growth and move towards models that exist, which are based on what's called the steady state economy, where you don't try and grow, you try to stay where you are. Um, and interestingly, COVID was one of the first time, well, the first time in our lives and in a very long time, that something other than economic growth was made the organising principle of our societies, right? Now, it happened because of an emergency, but uh, and which is not the ideal circumstance in which to do it, of course, but that's interesting. It's a, it's a moment when we decided collectively to slow down. And I don't want to be glib about that. We've lost 5 million people at a conservative estimate. It's caused a lot of psychological pain and all sorts of problems. But also for a lot of us, there was a, a feeling of relief in the world slowing down, in addition to all this stress and horror of like, oh, maybe we don't all need to race around all the time. Maybe maybe there's a different way to be. And I think that insight can be valuable when we take it forward as we emerge from the pandemic, which hopefully one day we will. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we can all drink to that. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, you, you kind of come on to my next question really nicely there, Johan. You know, you, you mentioned climate change and the environment. And as we know that the world is facing what can only be described as the most significant and potentially life-changing challenge it's ever faced in reckoning with climate change. So to address it will require us to probably put aside cultural and political differences and collaborate on a scale previously unknown in human history. So your book, I, I think, kind of paints a pretty stark picture of the effect of surveillance capitalism on, and a world built on this economic growth so do you have hope that we can really respond to climate change in a meaningful way if we're permanently and powerfully distracted we can't if we're permanently distracted but we absolutely can if we move beyond this crisis right and i think you're you're, you're totally right i mean this was really sobering to me lots of the cities where i spent a lot of time researching this book were then choked by fires I mean, it was really, if I think about just the ones that begin with the letter S, San Francisco, Sydney, and Sao Paulo, it was really sobering. After I was there, uh, I, I remember with Tristan Harris, the Google engineer who, former Google engineer who was so brave in speaking out about all this. But one day Tristan and I were walking around San Francisco just talking and he's saying, you know, the thing I most worry about in this is that it'll, you know, he didn't put it quite like this, but we're losing our superpower or our ability to pay attention at the time when we most need it, right? And then exactly a year later, because I was reading the transcript, there were the huge California wildfires, Tristan's own house burned down, and those streets we walked on were choked with smoke and glowing orange in the middle of the day. I remember in Sydney, I'm having this really... It funny, it was, it's funny how these some moments make global warming come come home to you in ways sometimes much bigger things don't. 
I've spent a lot of time in Sydney. I've got a lot of friends there. And one day I was on the phone. It was the height of the 2019 Black Summer when, you know, at one point the entire coast of the state of New South Wales was on fire. Three billion animals burned to death or, or had to flee. And um, it was maybe two or three weeks into that Black Summer, I, I was on the phone to my friend Andy in Sydney. And as he was speaking, and he lives in the centre of Sydney, the CBD, it's not like a, you know, doesn't live in the middle of the countryside or anything. And his his smoke alarm had to go, started going off. And he said, oh, we've got this problem. And what had happened was all over Sydney, in offices and homes, smoke alarms started to go off because the density of the smoke in the, in the air was so great that the buildings thought they were on fire, even though the wildfires were really far away. And you just thought, God, it's... It's this moment when you realise, like, the, the systems we built in our homes to keep us safe are working, but the bigger political system that's designed to keep us safe is not working, right? And I think it's really important to understand the way in which this is disrupting our ability to deal with global warming. So you go back to what we were saying about the business model for social media, right? The longer you scroll, the more money they get. That's the sole purpose of the algorithms, to keep you scrolling, so when those algorithms scan people and figure out what keeps you scrolling, they bump into a quirk of human psychology. It's called negativity bias. It's basically you will stare at something frightening and angering longer than you will stare at something that makes you feel good. It's why on a motorway, if you've ever driven past a car crash, you stare at the car crash longer than you stare at the lovely flowers by the side of the motorway, right? It's probably because it perfectly good evolutionary reason it makes more sense to scare at something that might hurt you than something that won't hurt you, right? You can even see this in 10-week-old babies will stare at an angry face longer than they stare at a smiling face for exactly that reason. But this this creates a disastrous effect online, which is that, uh, so a study by NYU found that if you insert angry moral disagreement into your tweets, they're 20% more likely to be shared. It was actually a horrifying study on Facebook. The Pew Research Center found that if you put moral disgust into your tweets, you double the amount they get liked and shared, right? So if it's enraging, it's engaging, right? Things that make you angry, the algorithm will start selecting for things that make you angry. Not because the algorithm wants you to be angry. The algorithm doesn't care how you feel, but the algorithm knows if you're angry, you're more likely to keep scrolling. Now, what that does is that produces and it's not the only reason to be sure, and it's important to stress there's many things going on, but that produces part of this catastrophic polarization that we're seeing across all our societies. And the fact that it's happening everywhere tells you something, right? The fact that we are locked in increasing bands of profound hatred. So if we are being constantly amped up to be artificially angry, now there's plenty of legitimate things to be angry about, but if we're constantly being amped up to be angry and un uncomprehending towards each other, right, tribalised, polarised, we absolutely will not deal with global warming. As you can see from the COVID response, where we have not dealt, I mean, we've done some good things, um, but, you know, it, it, it's promoted artificial polarization, anti-scientific polarization in all sorts of ways. And that was where the social media companies tried to clamp down on it. And even there, the algorithms select so heavily for it that they couldn't stop their machines promoting polarization. Um, and this isn't just my view or Tristan's view. This is what Facebook's own internal research says when it got leaked to us by Francis Haugen last year. So we can't deal with any of our problems if we don't have the ability to focus, pay attention, distinguish truth from lies, 
hold people accountable over time. We can't do any of those things. So I would argue a prerequisite towards solving the climate crisis, which we don't have a lot of time to do, but we need to get on with, is solving this attention crisis. Because if we're interacting through anger-based video games, which is essentially what social media has become, then we're not going to be able to solve this. Because this is about overlooking difference, coming together, uniting, holding power to account. Even think about something as simple as, I thought you two younger listeners might not even remember this, but you know, when, when we were younger, I remember being terrified about the ozone layer, right? Like people who don't know, there, were, uh, there was a chemical, uh, chemical component called CFCs uh, that was in hairsprays and fridges and various things. And it was causing a hole in the ozone layer, which protects us from the sun's rays above the Arctic. And we were really rightly very worried about that, right? And what happened is the world was warned about the scientific evidence. We listened to the scientific evidence. We saw that it was true. We held our politicians accountable. We made them do the right thing, ban CFCs and hairsprays and uh, get different kinds of fridges and held them accountable over a long period of time. And now the ozone layer is healing, right? I don't think if that crisis happened now, we would do that. I think you would have crazy conspiracy theories saying that the ozone layer the ozone layer doesn't exist or, you know, the hole was made by Jewish space lasers launched by George Soros or whatever. We wouldn't be able to distinguish the truth from the lie and hold our politicians accountable. And I also don't think we'd have the attention span. As you see from COVID, I'm bored now. You know, we, 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 tried, we tried social distancing and masks for a few months. I'm bored now. Let's just pretend the virus is gone, right? You, you can see, we, I don't think we would be capable of doing those things in the current information ecology we've created. But we don't have to live in this information ecology. As James Williams said to me, the Google, former Google engineer, um, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before someone thought to put a handle on it. The internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can change these things. We absolutely have it in our power to change these things. But we have to understand what's genuinely going on, and then we have to deal with it. Yeah, and thank thank you so much. It's it's you know it's always fascinating to talk about these things. You know, I have to say that reading the book was so many things all at once. It was terrifying. It was sobering. <laughs> it was fascinating, but it, it was hopeful too because you do talk about some steps we could make towards solutions. And I, I quite like the way that you you describe it not as a self help book that has a nice tidy solution at the end. It's things that people can start to engage in to start to change the narrative and change the approach and change the way we see and think about these things. So. I think it's incredibly timely and uh, I'm so grateful that you could find time to join us today to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And um, I really appreciate you engaging with the book so deeply. And I meant to say, or my publishers will tase me, that anyone who wants any more information about the book can go to stolenfocusbook.com. You can get the book or the audio book. You can also listen for free to interviews with lots of the experts we've talked about, like Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. I think it was the last interview you ever did. Um, Tristan Harris, loads and loads of the people. You can listen to audio with them. So, um, yeah, and uh, I absolutely believe we can deal with this and this doesn't have to happen, but we do need to understand what's really happening to us and that our attention's being stolen from us. Well, I just want to thank Johan so much for taking the time to chat, and I highly recommend reading Stolen Focus. It's an eye-opening, sobering, but ultimately hopeful consideration of how we might change society for the benefit of the many. If you want to know more about the book, you can visit the website stolenfocusbook.com, where you will find audio clips of many of the interviews.
Finally, you can hear Johan talking with Dr. Lucy Johnstone in a Disorder for Everyone crucial conversation happening on April the 28th, 2022 from 2pm to 5pm GMT. To register, visit the website eventbrite.com and search for A Disorder for Everyone. So thank you so much for listening and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.